Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, when my college football coach was once asked by a reporter what kind of offense he liked to run, he replied, oh, I don't know. I just like to scratch where it itches. And a few weeks ago, while surfing Facebook on my phone, I found an itch that needs scratching. And I was reminded of that quote from my college coach. Uh, Ed Setzer, excuse me, Ed Stetzer, who is a well-known evangelical author, speaker, and faculty member at Wheaton College in the suburbs of Chicago, he posted this on Facebook, and I hope these screenshots turn out okay. I did my best to get the, the best resolution I could. He posted this, uh, 500,000 dead in the U.S. with COVID, uh, millions more around the world. I'm thankful for churches and pastors that took this seriously, served their communities, ministered to the hurting, and loved the grieving. May the church continue to stand in the gap during this pandemic. Now, as you can see, there's 365 comments, 1.4, excuse me, 1,400 or more uh, emoji responses and 100 shares. But the comments is what got me scratching, shall I say. Uh, Stetzer's 48,000 Facebook followers couldn't just give this post a like or an emoji. Instead, they unleashed a fury of 365 comments. Uh, The itch that I feel compelled to scratch today is the way that the evangelical church or Christians have treated one another when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, Here's some examples on the comment thread. Marcus, and by the way, I've blotted out the last names to protect the guilty. Uh, Marcus was quick to criticize Stetzer's post when he commented, quote, took it serious. Lots of pastors took government more seriously than the Great Commission. Uh, There's a pastor in jail in Canada right now because of that. Thank God for those who dare to be Daniels. Hashtag free James Coates. Deborah then chimed in. She said, I'm thankful for the churches that took this seriously, but also incredibly angry at churches that continue to spread misinformation and violate safety guidelines and then claim persecution when held accountable. Well, then Brenda, wherever she is in the world, she felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to chime in as well. So she tags Deborah and jumps in, evidently, You don't serve the same God I do. Kelly then feels compelled wherever she is in the world that she's got to jump in and give her two cents. And so Kelly says, our God, excuse me, our church kept meeting. No COVID that I know of. Well, then Chad said, I got to speak up now. I mean, this is getting out of hand. I got to set this straight. So Chad tagged Kelly and said, I know of two churches within 30 minutes of me that refused to socially distance or wear masks. Each had an outbreak. One had 30 people catch COVID from the exposure and at least two died. The other church had a number get sick and at least one death so far. Anecdotal evidence only goes so far. Well, then Leanne also jumped in into the, this barroom brawl taking place on uh, Ed Stetzer's Facebook page. She tags Kaylee, who I think said she had no friends or loved ones die from COVID. So Leanne said, you're very lucky. I lost two friends, one age 31 with no pre-existing conditions. The second was 68, to which Kaylee replied, no, you didn't, and you know it. Lies. Really? So Leanne's lying about loved ones dying from COVID. Now, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that this Facebook comment thread is just the tip of the iceberg. 
when it comes to the infighting about COVID-19 that I've seen online amongst various tribes in the body of Christ. And just quite frankly, it's shameful. I hope you'll understand today why I was not only deeply saddened by this online banter, but also filled with righteous indignation. The division developing in the universal church over COVID-19 is making Satan rejoice and the Lord grieve. Now, this is not the first season that in church history during which church unity has been threatened. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul provided some very practical counsel on how to deal with it in Romans chapter 14. So we're continuing our mini-series today called Wisdom from COVID-19. If you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 14 with me and pull out the sermon notes that uh, you received when you arrived this morning. If you still need sermon notes, they're at the welcome table in the back. I want to encourage you to take notes and follow along with me. I have a lot of good content today to share with you, and I've got a lot that's going to maybe make you squirm. Uh, if you need to borrow a Bible, we also have extra Bibles in the back as well on that table. Now, as you turn there, let me just give you some context, because context is king when we're studying God's Word. The first 11 chapters of Romans contain the most extensive explanation of the gospel in the entire New Testament. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul transitions into making practical applications for the doctrines he spent 11 chapters unpacking. And here in chapter 14, he addresses the urgency of protecting church unity by not arguing over personal opinions. Thus, our big idea for today is this, the sermon in one sentence. Elevating our opinions over biblical truth destroys the unity Jesus died to create. Elevating our opinions over biblical truth destroys the unity that Jesus died to create. Although many 21st century Christ followers look back on the first century church as sort of the glory days when everything was as it should be, a closer examination of the New Testament letters reveals that it actually wasn't that great. Uh, for example, the Corinthians were divided over who their favorite apostle was. They were bickering over, uh, I follow Paul, well, I follow Peter, and so on and so forth. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Galatians were, according to Paul, biting and devouring one another over issues related to justification by faith and whether the Mosaic law should play a role in salvation. Imagine what their church gatherings must have been like on Sundays. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. In the Ephesians, they were fighting over ethnic differences, uh, struggling uh, Jewish, new, believe, new, new Jewish believers, and then new Gentile believers were fighting with each other in the Ephesian church because of their radically different ethnic backgrounds. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, on the one hand, I think there's encouragement in Romans 14 for us and the other letters that I just mentioned. And it's this. We are not the only church in church history that will struggle with unity. If we do struggle with it, we're just like the Romans and the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Corinthians. But on the other hand, Romans 14 and the other letters I mentioned Call us to be something better than we are. They call us to be a unified battalion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you would look at the text with me as I read the first five verses in Romans 14. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. All right, here's the first of four truths that Paul gives us on protecting church unity. The first is this, fighting over matters of opinion harms those God has welcomed. Fighting over matters of opinion harms those God has welcomed. Now, I need to do some unpacking here to give you some background and some context on what he's referring to, because it, it can feel like we're kind of jumping into the middle of a conversation and we missed how this fight started. So let me just say that the New Testament church was a, was a melting pot, if you'd say, of new believers from diverse religious backgrounds. There were Jewish believers struggling to let go of the strict lifestyle they learned growing up under the Mosaic Law. Then there were new Gentile believers struggling to forsake the immoral lifestyle they lived worshiping pagan idols. Or another way to put it would be uh, one group needed to loosen up and the other needed to tighten down. Or maybe another way to put it would be like, it'd be like imagining cats and dogs getting saved and then throwing them together in the same church. Or perhaps Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> and asking them to get along and to agree on some things. And so this dichotomy of religious backgrounds was creating tension and conflict in the church over issues of preference. The two issues that Paul addresses here in chapter 14 are simply uh, diet and days of observance. That, that's the simple way for me to just summarize it for you. Diet and days of observance. That's what he's talking about here in the first five verses. Now, regarding diet, you see it there mentioned in uh, verses 2 and 3. He's not, he's not uh, criticizing carnivores or vegans. Instead, the problem with diets arose in this way. In the first century, there were two places that shoppers could purchase meat. The first was, A, they could purchase fresh meat at the market at higher prices because supply was low. Or B, they could purchase leftover meat from pagan temples that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. That meat was cheaper because it was in greater supply. And so because of the strict upbringing the Jewish believers received, they would buy the fresh meat if they could afford it at the market because it was seen as ceremonially clean, according to the Old Testament law. But it was also more expensive. So some of the Jewish believers just ate vegetables. Well, on the other hand, the Gentile believers had no problem with using leftover meat from the pagan temples because of their background, realizing what they had been saved from having no upbringing in the Mosaic Law. And so this was causing friction at their church fellowship suppers. How come you're only eating vegetables? Well, how come you're eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Who do you think you are? Next, the other issue was days of observance. This is mentioned in verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, and so on. Most commentators agree that the dispute over days of observance is less clear than the one over diet, because Paul doesn't tell us as much here in the passage about it. The disagreement between the two groups could have been over when to observe the Sabbath, or it could have been about whether or not the Old Testament days of feast and fast still applied. But it's most likely the Jewish believers were still wanting to obey the Mosaic law, on this topic as well, 
Whereas the Gentile believers were more relaxed on when they could fast and observe the Sabbath. So Paul writes, and this is a key verse, and I'll spend some time on this, in verse 1, welcome him, meaning, hey, you Gentile believers, welcome the Jewish convert, and hey, you Jewish converts, welcome the Gentile converts. Stop shutting them out of the church. Stop, stop criticizing them. And welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So, so the apostle is saying, even if you do welcome him, don't welcome him into the church just so you can fight with him. Just so you can get in an argument and beat him down and win. Or, or change them. Don't do that either. Not to quarrel over opinions could literally be translated, stop passing judgment over each other's inner thoughts. Stop passing judgment over each other's inner thoughts. The Greek word for opinions, uh, it's the same word we get dialogue from. It's, it's referring to the inner dialogue that people have. I first learned this verse in the NIV, which renders it disputable matters. I've always preferred that rendering because I think it most accurately conveys what Paul had, what Paul had in mind. And that is that he's referring to matters that are not clearly defined as right or wrong in the Scriptures. He's talking about things that are up for debate. They are disputable. It's not black and white. It's It's gray. So, what exactly is an opinion? I need to define this for us because in today's day and age, and with Fox News and CNN, so many people, including evangelical Christians, have turned their opinions into facts and made them biblical convictions. And so, an opinion is a belief based on personal preference and emotion instead of proven fact or objective truth. It's a belief based on personal preference and emotion instead of proven fact or objective truth. The first reason we should avoid quarreling with those who have different opinions than us is found in verse 3. Paul says, For God has welcomed him. In other words, when one group refuses to welcome another group based on personal preferences instead of biblical convictions, they are rejecting people God has already let into the church. They are saying with their actions, they may not say it out loud, but they are saying, nope, God got it wrong, and obviously that's not good. I remember um, years ago serving in an older established church, and um, it was a church that had a, had a culture of suit and tie on Sunday. It, it was back in the Midwest, so I know, I know that's not as common here in California, but um, I remember sitting in an elders meeting, and some of the older gray-haired elders were being pushed a little bit and challenged to relax the requirement that ushers wear a suit and tie because there were younger men in the church who wanted to serve as ushers, but they, they were more into business casual. And, and, and the companies they worked for had shifted to business casual and no longer required suits and ties. Well, the older ushers feared that... Um, relaxing that dress code was going to be really offensive to the Lord, and they feared it was only the beginning of a slippery slope down into a seeker-sensitive church that no longer preached the gospel. And so you can see how just something like that uh, becomes a very sensitive, emotional lightning rod for them. But sadly, what they were saying with their actions or implying, and I don't think they even realized it, is that no, you younger guys 
who love Jesus Christ. Say you love Jesus Christ, but you're not willing to wear a suit and tie when you usher. No, you're not welcome here. You, you can't serve here. We'll just keep serving and keep doing it. And so the whole, you know, the, the pastors and I, we were trying to open up some positions of service for the younger generations because the face of the church was all gray hairs and the church was dying. And so one of the things we were trying to do is we got to get some younger people serving in this church. We got to get them up front. We got to get them opportunities, but not require them to wear the same thing you have worn for 40 years, ushing. Now, here are some disputable matters in the church today that come up. I've already mentioned style of dress, but also there are churches that have split over style of music, using worship, whether or not to homeschool children, choice of Bible translation, whether or not to drink alcohol, choice of birth control, political policies, and more. And then, of course, COVID-19. Now, let me just be, I want to be as clear as I can because this is a very complex passage and how it connects to COVID is also very complex. And I just have to admit, this is one of the hardest messages I have tried to prepare in a long time. So let me just say this, the severity of the COVID-19 virus is a disputable matter. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Sorry, that's a double negative. <laughs> Let me say it this way. It exists. I think the facts prove that COVID-19 exists, but the, the problem is the debate, the thing that's causing so much friction in the church, outside of the church, and across our country is how severe is it? That's what people are fighting about. I'll explain why this is important in a few minutes, so stick with me. But for now, let's remember that elevating our opinions over biblical truth destroys the unity Jesus died to create. Now, in verses 6 through 9, the apostle gives another reason why we should avoid quarreling with those who have different opinions than us. He writes, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Here's the second truth that Paul tells us regarding disputable matters, and that is our personal preferences and opinions should be fashioned with accountability to the Lord in mind. Our personal preferences and opinions should be fashioned with accountability to the Lord in mind. Please notice in the text how the Apostle Paul is not concerned with which day is more sacred than the other or what one believer eats versus another. He doesn't go there. He doesn't take sides in the argument. And, and, and the different groups in the Roman church probably wanted him to. Just like, just like kids who are having a fight, they want, they want to get their parent the authority on their side. And so they'll argue and try to persuade or withhold facts to get the parent to side with them so then the sibling gets punished. Well, in a similar fashion, they were probably hoping that from Paul. But Paul doesn't go there. He stays neutral and he aims at the higher, more important issue. If Paul were here today, I, I think Paul wouldn't care about what we drink, who we vote for, what style of clothes we wear, or what we think about the severity of COVID. Rather, what we see here in the text, and I hope you see it like I do, is his highest concern. His highest concern is that our freedoms and our opinions and our personal preferences 
are shaped knowing that we will have to answer to the Lord. And so if you look at verse 6, you'll see that he repeats the phrase, in honor of the Lord, three times. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. Oh, yeah, and then on the other side of the fence, the one who eats, he eats in honor of the Lord. And then the one who abstains, yeah, he's the guy on the other side of the fence that you're fighting against. He's also doing it in honor of the Lord. Then notice in verse 7 how he says we are not to be living for ourselves. But rather, according to verse 8, we should be living for the Lord. So this means that even though Even though the scriptures may not condone or condemn certain lifestyle choices or opinions, Christ followers, we just can't throw caution to the wind and and do whatever feels good. Hey, YOLO, man. Woo! That's not... not. Instead, uh, just like bumper guards at a bowling alley, our freedoms and our opinions and personal preferences should still, they should still be guarded. Guarded with and informed by wisdom from the Scriptures. So for example, although the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn smoking or eating junk food, mature believers will take into consideration what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, which is that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so so mature believers would would have those scriptures as bumper guards on either side of the lane. And then they would use the wiggle room in between those bumpers to decide what they should or should not do. Therefore, there's wiggle room within the lane when it comes to lifestyle choices, but you just can't throw your ball anywhere you want. In the alley, you got to, to use the cliche, stay in your lane. Seriously, though, the apostle reinforces the importance of remembering our personal accountability to the Lord in verse 12. Just, just skip down to verse 12, and you'll see. So each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So, so the fear of God should shape our personal opinions and preferences, not, well, it's my rights, and who are you to tell me I can't do it, and I just feel like I want to do it, and so on and so forth. And unless you've got a Bible verse that specifically tells me I can't do what I'm doing, then just go ahead and get out of here. No. Paul is saying, hey, you Jewish believers, you're going to answer the Lord. So make your decisions on your freedom and your preferences and opinions based on answering to the Lord. And hey, you Gentiles, same for you. So what solutions does Paul offer for emotionally loaded, disputable matters? Well, thankfully he does in verses 13 to 19. Please follow along with me as I read. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." All right, here's number three on your outline, the third truth that Paul's trying to convey about church unity and opinions. Our freedom 
should be limited by the needs of other believers. Our freedom should be limited by the needs of other believers. Another way I could say it is there's some conscientiousness that's needed in the church. So what the apostle does here is he now turns the tables from, from not criticizing another's preference or opinion to what we should do with our own preferences and opinions. So it's as if there's a question that's been asked that he's, well, maybe the question's not been asked. Maybe he's just anticipating the question, but are we allowed to just impose our own views on others in the name of constitutional rights? Because we're Americans. No. Instead, he says in verse 13, we are to judge ourselves and put the needs of others first. The word... uh, uh, we are to avoid, avoid putting a stumbling block in the way of another brother and sister in the Lord. The word in the original language for stumbling block literally means something a person would trip over. It's a metaphor for anything that might hinder their spiritual growth in the Lord. Paul then gives an example of what it looks like in verses 14 and 15. Even though he, as a former Pharisee, a Jew, this is big that he says this, even though Paul himself does not consider any food unclean. So he's saying, you know, I would, I would side with the Gentiles on the food issue here. However, if I were having lunch with a Jewish believer, and that Jewish believer was struggling with meat being unclean, then I would refrain from eating meat in front of them. So so Paul's saying, I would not pull the American, it's my right to get over it mindset. No, he would limit his freedom out of consideration for the weaker brother. And so, is it wrong to enjoy a glass of wine with your Italian meal? Not if you're eating by yourself. However, it could be sinful if you drink wine in front of another brother and sister or sister who struggles with alcohol or has a personal conviction against drinking it. And so what the the passage is calling us to do is out of consideration for them, you should ask them how they feel about alcohol before the meal. Hey, is it okay? Oh, okay. oh, that's all right. You, you guys prefer not to drink? Then okay, we won't. As opposed to, I'm an American. And I got rights preserved by the Constitution. I will drink in front of whoever I want to drink in front of because God's word says I can. Paul's saying, no, that's selfish. We need to be considerate. And so the reason this topic is so difficult for American evangelicals is that our Constitution says we are entitled to certain rights and freedoms, but God's Word calls believers to deny themselves for the sake of others. So there's this clash. Just being totally blunt and honest with you, there's a clash between what the Constitution of America, the United States of America teaches versus what God's Word teaches. And therefore... Since I haven't been blunt yet, let me just say it. We need to be very careful that we don't elevate the United States Constitution above the Word of God because the former gives us more freedom than the latter. That doesn't please the Lord. Did you know the Lord's not American? I know it's shocking. I know that is anti-Fox News, but the Lord is not an American. And so Paul, he, he reinforces this concept to the, to the Galatians when he wrote to them in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so we got to understand, we have to make sure we don't look at the concept of freedom in the New Testament through the lens of the United States Constitution, which 
is only, what, maybe 250 years old. Did you know that God's Word's been around a lot longer than that? It was in place first. So what that means is, is set aside the Constitution. What does God's Word mean by freedom? Well, it means this. Freedom is referring to being free from having to earn your own salvation by following the Old Testament law. And when Paul talks about freedom earlier in the book of Romans, he's also referring to being free to choose not to sin anymore. Being set free from the bondage of sin. It's because, because the New Testament describes unbelievers as being enslaved to their sin, meaning they lack the spiritual power to resist temptation. However, through Christ, one of the many, many benefits of knowing Christ Jesus as your Savior is that you are set free and given the spiritual power to say no to sin for the first time in your life. Now, how is this related to COVID-19? I'm so glad you asked. And I know you're dying to know. I want to share with you six factors that shape our view of COVID-19. These are not facts. In fact, I should have probably chosen a different word than factors. Because some of you may be looking at going, ah, factors. I see the root in factors is the word fact. So therefore, all the things that you list right now that I agree with are facts, not opinions. So I, could, I should have called this six influencers that shape our view of COVID-19. Each of these is an emotionally charged lightning rod. So here's the first, letter A. Our view of news media. Did you know that? You see, is Fox News more reliable than CNN? Don't answer that. Is NBC better than ABC? Or all the major news outlets crooks, so we're better off getting our news from lesser-known sources, like friends I have on Facebook who are... Uh, I've got some friends that are very outspoken on Facebook about the pandemic being a conspiracy, and so they post news articles from sources I've never heard of before. So how, how, how much you trust, distrust, or scrutinize the news media will influence how you view COVID-19. Next, letter B, our, our view of government. The degree in which you trust government will determine how strongly you support or don't support the measures government has put in place to protect us from the virus. So if you don't trust government at all, you're probably going to be very skeptical of the lockdowns and use words like tyranny and speak out about your constitutional rights being violated. The same is true of the statistics that government gives us and uses to make their decisions. If we trust government entirely, partially, or not at all, this will affect the way we view the statistics they give us. So can you see how this would cause some pastors and their churches to, uh, if, they, if they view government as not trustworthy at all, not even 1% credibility, can you see how this would cause then some pastors and churches to slap a few Bible verses on top of their negative view of government and then claim they're being persecuted? So, so what, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to uncover here is that it's th that view is not rooted in the Scriptures, but rather the deeper issue is they don't trust government. They don't trust what they're being told about the virus. Next, letter C, our personal health. Another key influencer that affects how we view COVID-19 is our personal health. If you or a loved one have an underlying condition, chronic health problems, or a weakened immune system, you will be more likely to wear a mask and to want others to do so because you're thinking, I already got enough health problems and I'm already in medical debt. I don't need any more problems. 
I don't need to catch COVID and make things even worse. Whereas someone who's reasonably healthy, maybe younger, will see wearing a mask as an unnecessary, irritating inconvenience. Next, letter D, personal loss. Those who have suffered the painful loss of family, friends, or coworkers who died from COVID-19 are going to be saying, hey, this is serious. I, I just watched my father die in intensive care unit and he had no underlying conditions. Or, or I, just, I just had to bury my spouse or my child because of this virus. Whereas those who have not lost a loved one will be more likely to view the virus as, eh, it's not that big a deal. It's just like another flu. Because, because they are emotionally distanced from the impact that virus had on some stranger on the other side of the state. Next, another factor that influences how we view COVID-19, letter E, financial risk. If you've been able to keep your job if not, and you've not been affected financially by COVID-19, then you're more likely to see the virus as... Uh, you're less likely to see it as, as dangerous. On the other hand, those who have a business or a job that has been negatively affected by the virus, like you've had to lay off staff or maybe you have been laid off, you're more willing to take risks in order to preserve their income or your own income and don't view the virus as dangerous. I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier there. What I meant to say regarding those who have not been affected financially is they will tend to see the virus as more dangerous, whereas those who have been affected financially will minimize the virus because they're losing money. They're struggling to put food on the table. And then finally, letter F, temperament. If you are an extrovert who gets your batteries charged by being around people, then you're more likely to see the stay-at-home orders as detrimental to your mental health because you miss that camaraderie. You miss the, the social connection. However, if you're an introvert who gets your batteries charged being away from people, well, then you're more likely to see the stay-at-home orders as the greatest blessing of your lifetime. Thinking, Hallelujah! I never needed people in my life anyway. Finally, I'm rid of them. I can do whatever I want. But that affects. So, so extroverts will argue this, this, these lockdowns are bad. We, we're, we, we, they're going to value and emphasize relationships and the need to connect with other people again, that Zoom is not enough, texting's not enough. Whereas the introverts, who are typically more task-oriented, are going to be like, hallelujah, I can get more done around the house now that all the people are out of my life. My house is going to be as clean as ever. So, do you see how each one of us would rank these issues differently on a scale of 1 to 10? Do you see how each of these will influence whether we think our state should shut down or open up? Whether masks should be required or optional? Whether we should get the vaccine or not get it? Do you see how this can cause conflict in a church or between churches or across our country? Now, the point of this message is not to declare who's right or who's wrong in the COVID-19 debate. Rather, what I'm trying to say is that personal health, personal loss, and financial risk are all important. However, the severity of the virus is disputable. Therefore, we need to avoid drawing a subjective conclusion, looking for data to support our argument, because we can all do that. We can all go out on the internet. Hallelujah for the internet, right? 
We're all experts now. We can all go out there and find what we want to make our case for why we're right and you're wrong. But we need to avoid drawing a subjective conclusion, looking for data to support our argument, slapping a few Bible verses on top, and then going to war with anyone who disagrees with us because we think we have the facts. The facts have been very hard to pin down in the last year. I think there's some that are, are very clear, and I think there are some other facts that are not as clear. So, elevating our opinions over biblical truth destroys the unity Jesus died to create. So, what do we, what do, we do instead? Well, let's look at verses 20 to 23, where Paul wraps up his, his uh, teaching here on this conflict in the church. He writes... Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But... Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right, here's the last point on your outline. Number four, focusing on doctrinal truth and the gospel unites the Lord's church. Focusing on doctrinal truth and the gospel unites the Lord's church. Just a clarification I want to make here. Um, from verse 22, he says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. He is not talking about your faith in Christ. Just substitute in there, instead of faith, in verse 22, just substitute the word opinions or preferences. So the, the opinions or preferences that you have, just keep them between yourself and God. That's what he's referring to. And he's not saying anything you do in faith is, 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 is not sin. No, he's not saying that at all in verse 23. He's saying if you have a personal preference or opinion that you exercise to please other people or to satisfy your flesh, then it is sinful. But, if that personal preference or opinion is exercised with a clean conscience before the Lord, wanting to please the Lord, remember Paul said three times in verse 6, in honor of the Lord, in honor of the Lord, we live for the Lord. If you do that, then it is not sin because it's proceeding from your faith in Him. Now, a couple more things on verses 20 to 23. Here's another way that I would translate verse 20. Do not, for the sake of the coronavirus, destroy the work of God. Don't, don't, for the sake of the coronavirus, destroy the witness of the church. Instead, the apostle says we need to keep our eyes on the bigger picture. Why? Well, for one reason, because doctrinal truth and the gospel are objective not subjective. So we need to be asking ourselves questions like, what's God trying to teach us with this virus? And how can we hold forth the hope of the gospel during this pandemic when people are struggling? How can we show them that there's a better life to be had, that there are answers to their struggles and their problems instead of shooting at people who disagree with us? Oh, yeah? Well, I watch Fox News 24 hours a day. Oh, yeah? Well, I did all my own research on the Internet. Therefore, I know more than the epidemiologist. I don't know who Dr. Anthony Fauci is. He's nothing to me. He's dead to me. No, Paul says, focus on the gospel and the good news that Jesus died for sinners and offers hope and eternal life for them. Now, 
Before I close, I need to make a clarification in order to avoid the ditch on the other side of the road. Although Paul is calling us to protect the unity of the church by extending grace to each other in disputable matters, he is not, please say not with me, he, not, he is not saying we should also tolerate sin, false doctrine, or false converts for the sake of unity. He's not saying that. There are plenty of other scriptures that charge us to address those issues. And so that's why it takes discernment to know, is this a matter of opinion and preference, or is this a, a doctrinal issue? Is this a, an issue where it is sin? In his book, Warnings to Churches, one of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, wisely states that when the truth of God's word is threatened, unity needs to be broken. There are times when it's okay to divide and right to divide. He then gives examples such as Martin Luther breaking rank with the Catholic Church over their drift into traditionalism. And Paul confronting Peter in the New Testament about his hypocrisy toward the Gentiles regarding the gospel. Ryle then goes on to say, Paul teaches us that we ought to contend for truth jealously and fear the loss of truth more than the loss of peace. Peace without truth is false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. Unity without the gospel is worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Unity which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth is worth nothing. It is not unity that pleases God. Okay, applications. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? Well, here's the first of two that come to mind. And as I often, often say, the Lord may give you another personal application. Perhaps the Spirit's convicting you to go back and apologize to someone for an argument you had about COVID. Or perhaps the Spirit's convicting you to take down some social media posts. Um, that's between you and the Lord. But here's two that came to my mind. First of all, clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. And I've intentionally given you the scripture reference I'm, re I'm referring to here, 1 Peter 5, 5. That's where Paul says, clothe yourselves, all of you, meaning he's not talking to just the young kids. He's not just talking to the old folks. He's saying all of you, me included, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility, I like to say, is the sober awareness of my own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. It's, it's the sober awareness of how weak and frail and fallen I am and all my limitations in light of who God is. It's so being opinionated and being proud of Someone who has a lot of, you know, being proud of having a lot of opinions is actually a fruit of pride. Proverbs 18, I think it's 18.3, says the fool delights in spreading his own opinions. He loves doing it because he's a fool. Thus, clothing ourselves with humility will instantly reduce the number of opinions that we have. I know personally what I have found is the longer I've walked with the Lord and the more I grow in my understanding of the Word and the closer I grow to Him, the fewer and fewer opinions I'm having. They just fewer and fewer things matter to me in the areas of personal preference or opinion now. There are things that I 10 years ago got fired up about and was willing to go to war over that now I look back and I'm that wasn't worth it. What was I thinking? I mean... Everybody knows that you should say soda, not pop. I mean, it's just, come on. And that, and that it's Sunday, not Sunda, when you go to Dairy Queen. No, I'm just kidding. Now, on the other hand, prideful people have too many strong opinions, and they end up drawing lines in the sand that divide relationships. It's okay to have a few opinions, but 
Even then, those opinions should be seasoned with humility. So, so we should say things like, you know, I could be wrong here, and I often am. Here's what I think. Or, in my humble, unqualified opinion, I think Dr. Anthony found she's a stud. Or, this is what I think, but I'm not going to go to war and break fellowship over this because I don't have all the information on this topic. Those are, those are qualifying humility statements. Having humility gives us the freedom to admit we don't know everything and that we can be wrong and that we don't have to know everything and that we don't have to have an opinion on everything. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to say, you know, if somebody asks you, hey, did you see that on the news last night? What do you think of that? I don't have any thoughts on that. It's sad. It's tragic. It's another reminder we live in a fallen world. And it reminds me to ask Jesus to come back soon. Putting on humility will also help us to step out of our own shoes into someone else's. For example, the humble business owner who is having to lay off employees because of the pandemic can also see how a lockdown order is beneficial for the person who has chronic illness and vice versa. The person with chronic illness who is in favor of lockdowns, if they are humble, they can empathize with the business owner who had to close down permanently, who lost his life savings and his dream and is now unemployed and had to lay off 10 of his staff too. Humility allows us to empathize with both people. Next, number two, second application. Learn the scriptures so you can distinguish between truth and opinion. Learn the scriptures so you can distinguish between truth and opinion. The apostle urged the Romans back in chapter 12, verse 2, that they should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of their minds so that they may be by testing, they can discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we should do the same. A healthy knowledge of the scriptures will not come overnight. It accumulates over time as you do daily devotions, weekly small group Bible study, and sit under the preaching of God's word. Just like getting into physical shape at the gym, you won't see immediate results when you do your daily devotions. But if you stick with it, you will eventually see some muscles start to show up and some spiritual fat begin to drop off. Every believer's goal should be to be more like Christ and to know his word better this year than they did last year. And that is how you learn to distinguish between what's true and what's worth fighting for versus what's an opinion. And it's worth flexing on that. I do know this for certain. And that is if you don't learn the scriptures as a believer, you will fall for anything and you will stand for nothing. And that's tragic. Well, in the years following the Gulf War, the Kurds in northern and southern Iraq were revolting against the Iraqi government which was still led by the dictator, Saddam Hussein. U.S. forces established a no-fly zone in order to prevent the Iraqi government from persecuting the Kurdish refugees while also providing humanitarian aid. On April 14, 1994, two U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters with a combined crew and passengers of 26 people entered the no-fly zone en route to the operations command center. There were two Air Force F-15s that were patrolling the fly zone, no-fly zone that day, excuse me. They intercepted the two helicopters. The Blackhawks were equipped with a computer system, it's called IFF, uh, that was supposed to signal the radar on the F-15s 
that they were friend, not foe. But for some reason, that system malfunctioned on both helicopters that day. So the F-15s followed procedure, and they flew closer for visual identification. The first fighter on the scene misidentified the Blackhawks as Iraqi helicopter gunships. This then led to the two F-15s circling back to shoot down the two U.S. Army Blackhawk helicopters with air-to-air missiles. No one from either helicopter survived. The subsequent investigation revealed a handful of factors that led to this tragedy, including failure of the friend or foe computer system on the helicopters, also the incorrect visual identification by the pilots, and the failure of nearby AWACS surveillance aircraft to intervene. Friendly fire incidents are a sobering, remi sobering reminder that in the fog of war, it's very easy to shoot at your comrades instead of the enemy. Let's not do that as a church. Let's be wiser. And let's be better. Because elevating our opinions over biblical truth destroys the unity Jesus died to create. Would you join me as I close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.